Well, good morning. Hey, before we dive into Psalm 19, I just want us to take a moment. We're going to just add some prayer here. Um, obviously, uh, it's hard to miss that there has been a, a stirring in the former Soviet Union with Russia invading the Ukraine. I just want us to take a moment to pray. I know there's a lot of confusion, and I wish I could tell you what in the world was going on and what's the right thing. I, I don't know all that stuff. All I can do is ask for God to give peace. And so would you bow your heads and let's just take a moment. Father, we know in your word that you said that until Jesus returns, there will be wars and rumors of wars and things like this. And we know this is not the first time in human history that this has happened. And if you tarry, it will not be the last. And yet it grieves our hearts, Father. Our hearts are, are torn for the people of the Ukraine and Father, we confess we, we struggle to even know what to pray, except we pray for peace, Father. We pray where there has been unrighteousness, that has been a aggressive, Father, that it would be thwarted by the name of your son, Jesus. And we ask, O oh Lord, um, that you would give grace and that you would speak a word of peace over the Ukraine. It, it's not hard for us to imagine what it would be like if we were uh, in the shoes of the people in the Ukraine right now. And we pray for your grace to be present in a big way. And we especially, oh Lord, pray for believers that are in the land. There are men and women that love you so much. And I, I know there's partners of ours that are there and they're seeking um, to bring hope. They're seeking to bring light. They're seeking to bring peace in the midst of this chaos. We pray that you would empower them, oh Lord. Raise them up as warriors in this day, Father, and do a work in this. And we ask that you would end this travesty soon and quick. And we ask that you would protect our world in this season. For all that could begin to unravel right now, we know that word and we feel it. We ask that you would protect our world in this season. We love you and we give you thanks for your sovereign control over all matters. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. amen. Thank you, guys, and thank you for continuing um, to do that. You know, years ago, uh, my wife approached me in one of those moments and said, the kids and I have made a decision. We're going to go to the beach next year for our family vacation. And you got to realize that for years and years, I'd been taking my family to the mountains to hike and to fish. I was convinced that the higher up you go in elevation, the closer you get to God. It makes sense, right? And I was also convinced the inverse was true, that the lower you went in elevation the further you got away from God. And the proof of my theory in my mind was this thing called sand. You see, when you go to the beach, you are cursed, afflicted, plagued with this thing called sand. Not just while you're there, it gets in your vehicle, it gets in your clothes. You're finding it for months and months. You bring it back with you. But I also knew another equally important truth. This is gonna be revelation for some of you. If mama ain't happy, Ain't nobody happy. And I had to confess that my wife had indulged me for years and years with trips to the mountains. And so I said, absolutely, we will do this. And for the first time in a long time, I wasn't looking forward to family vacation until I got this idea that I could learn to scuba dive. You see, for my years growing up, my dad had a hobby and it was aquariums. And I could sit mesmerized by fish in an aquarium for not just minutes, but I feel like hours. 
And that in and of itself was miraculous because if I were a kid in this day and age, I do believe there would be a doctor that would recommend strongly to my parents that I be put on some sort of medication because I couldn't sit still at all. But I could sit there for long periods of time just mesmerized by the fish, which I, looking back, is probably the reason my dad kept that hobby going for a long time, even though we couldn't afford it. I will never forget the first time I was underwater. The world was silent, except for the sound of my respirator, which, when you're 60 feet underwater, is a great sound. And I was looking at this formation of coral that looks a lot like a rock, but I knew from my science classes, from the TV shows, that it wasn't rock, it was actually a living creature. And all these species of fish that were around it, dozens of them and dozens of kinds of plants. And I I realized that the fish and the plants were connected to the coral and they were working in this design, symbiotic kind of relationship. And I remember seeing the grandness of this underwater world, grandness not just in scope, but grandness in intricacy. And I was sitting there looking at it and I can remember thinking, how could every scientist on planet Earth think something so majestic in scope and detail just happened. How in the world could they believe this? This is too exact, too sophisticated, too majestic to be part of a random process. And I found myself falling prey to the common thought of our day, and it's this. You can have faith or you can have science, but you cannot have both. You can have scripture or you can have science, but you have to pick one or the other. And that's not just my thinking. It is common thinking in our society, and I would dare say many of us think deep down that is what we have to do. Whether we're at the North Campus, South Campus, we're part of our online family, it matters not. In fact, many people are under the impression that science has somehow disproved Christianity. That all the things you read about the Bible, no way they could happen, and if you embrace scientific thought at all, you have to reject Christianity. Some people have abandoned the faith that they said they have had. The common word used today is deconstruct their faith. It's not a new thing, by the way. Maybe a new word, but not a new thing. And they have said that I have to deconstruct this faith because science has uncovered so much in the past century. And the assumption is that if you embrace science, you must reject faith. The idea comes from a lot of sources. Maybe the most notable is the neo-atheist Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book in 2008 called The God Delusion. He and a couple other lesser-known authors. And in the book, he argued that you cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and still hold to religious beliefs. To support this idea, he quoted one study that supposedly talked to scientists and only 7% believed in a... Uh, personal God in any form or fashion. He says this is proof that the more intellectual, rational, and scientific you are, the less you can believe in actual religious kind of things, belief in God. And for the most part, you have to admit, if you listen to media, and it's any report on science, that's what you get. Almost any talk in media, whether it's the TV shows of Discovery or National Geographic or other reports, they almost always pick scientists from a naturalistic, humanistic point of view. And so for several decades now, people have said, I've got to pick science or the Bible, science or faith. But is it true? Has science disproved Christianity? Interestingly, Even in the world of science, it's not as true as you think it is. In the year 1916, I know that's a long time ago, 
Social scientists did a survey of scientists, and they asked them a series of questions. The summary of it is this. Do you believe in a God who actively communicates with humanity, at least through prayer? So note this question. This is a very theologically conservative kind of question. And the answer in 1916 was that 40%, listen, 40% of scientists affirmed that they believed in a personal God who communicated through humanity. 40% of scientists said they did not believe that. 20% said it was unknown. 80 years later, another group of social scientists did the exact same survey of a of scientists two generations later asking this very same question. Now, with the rhetoric that you hear today in the media, what would you expect the result to be? Would you not expect that the number has plummeted, that almost no scientist today would believe in a God who actively communicates with, uh, with humanity in any form or fashion? Here's what's interesting. The study showed that the numbers remain virtually the same. That in this day and age, 40%, 40% of scientists say they believe in God who will interact. It was there a second ago. <laughs> Science got rid of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> they believe in a God who actively communicates to humanity, especially through prayer. Listen to me. Not even in the world of science are people choosing between science and faith. In fact, many have actually come to faith not despite their science, but because of their science. In the home where I grew up, faith was not something that was talked about very much. My father was a professor of drama. My mother was a playwright. When I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion began to occur, I found no reason to attach value to a faith worldview. I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. In medical school, I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of its complexities, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. But then I moved on to the clinical training portion, learning to take care of patients with real diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people with real suffering. One afternoon, I was with one of my patients, a wonderful woman, much like a grandmother. She had very bad heart disease. She had a particularly bad episode of chest pain while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith in Jesus was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really able to give her that much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description of that faith, she turned to me. I had been silent. She looked at me quizzically, and then she asked, what do you believe, doctor? I was stunned. I said I didn't really know. Her question had made me realize that as an atheist, I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do, is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. So I was determined to search for evidence. I was greatly assisted by a pastor who lived down the road, who tolerated my blasphemous questions, and gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, 
near Christianity. Here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis. In fact, I soon discovered that there are many pointers towards a creator that come from science itself. The universe had a beginning. It follows elegant mathematical laws. And it is fine-tuned by the way all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible. As I searched for more evidence of what God must be like, I encountered the person of Jesus Christ. I was amazed to discover how much we know about his life. I had thought that Christ was as much myth as history. As I studied more, I learned there is a great deal of evidence for his teachings, and even for his having risen literally from the dead. The evidence was compelling, and it demanded a decision. That day at my patient's bedside started a journey for me, a journey that I was reluctant to begin, but I felt I needed to. It was a journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, <laughs> but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. I am now a follower of Jesus. Come on! Is that not incredible? Now, you're wondering who he is. You may actually recognize his name from all the pandemic stuff. Dr. Francis Collins was the director of the National Institute of Health, and he was one of the voices, not nearly as famous as the infamous Dr. Anthony Fauci, but one of those voices that were guiding the presidents, both Trump and Biden, during, through this pandemic process. He resigned at the end of last year, but here's what he was known for before leading the National Institute of Health. He was actually a geneticist, and he discovered certain genes that were associated with certain diseases. It was a huge discovery, and because of his discovery, they started the largest genetic project in the history of humanity called the Human Genome Project. Listen to me. I'm not saying that theologically I agree with everything of Dr. Collins. What I am saying is everyone will say that he is one of the most brilliant scientific minds of our generation. And you heard his story in his own voice and his own words. He's saying you don't have to pick between science and faith. In fact, he would dare say they merge hand in hand, which interestingly is exactly what Scripture says. This week I was looking at the 19th Psalm. And it hit me that it says exactly the same thing. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, creation pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech. There is no language where their voice is not heard. So do you, do you see the image? The psalmist, who happens to be King David of old in this case, is saying that one of the purposes of nature one of the purposes for that which is created is to declare the glory of God. We kind of know this, don't we? I mean, come on, there's a reason that we feel so close to God in nature. It's not because God and nature are one. God is separate from nature. Nature in and of itself is not divine. Listen to that. But it does testify moment by moment, probably like nothing else, of the power of the grandness of the greatness of God. That's why the psalmist continues. 
Creation's voice goes out into all the earth, the words to the ends of the earth. In heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from the pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heaven, makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Did you notice? The psalmist made a switch. The first six verses, he is talking about what? Creation that is unveiled in science. And then, boom, he moves to the law of the Lord. He moves to Scripture. In our minds, they seem to be two completely different subjects, things you have to choose from. But the psalmist doesn't believe so. In fact, he begins talking about one is given revelation of God, then Scripture given revelation of God, and he makes no transition statement. He weaves them together as if they belong hand in hand to one another. He says the heavens and the law, creation and scripture, science and faith, they go hand in hand together, revealing the grandness and the greatness of God. It is why he continues, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Who wants some joy in their life right now? Comes from the precepts of God. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light in the midst of darkness to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure, altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, yea, than much fine gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In them there is great reward. See, throughout the Bible, we are told a reality that I'm afraid we're missing in our day and age. God is speaking and we need to listen. We must listen to the voice of God in both creation and scripture. As long as we have been seeking answers, we have been asking questions. Who are we? How did we get here? And what exactly are we doing here? More recently, the questions have diverged. A line has been drawn between faith and science. Do both have something to say? Something worth listening to? Must we choose a side, picking one and ignoring all the other might contribute? For on the one hand, does the Bible alone answer every question there is to ask? In its pages, we find stories of faith, promises of peace, and visions of a better future. But can it explain how the world works? From the smallest particle to the entire universe? On the other hand, for all science can show us, can it ultimately reveal what matters most? Is the purpose of the human soul mapped in our DNA? What is the atomic number for joy? But what if these are simply the wrong questions? What if both, in their own distinct ways, reflect the wonder and the work of God? In our faith, we plumb the depths of hope, the power of mercy, the mystery of redemption. But then in science, we are able to understand the facts of the world God created, to examine and to then quantify the workings of the universe. While science and the Bible can each give us many answers, neither on its own gives us every answer. And so it is they cooperate, working together to paint a more complete picture of all God has made. Our faith shows us how we should live, while science teaches us how life happens. Science can tell us how the world works, but only in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus do we see what it all means. See, there it is. We must listen to the voice of God in both creation 
and in Scripture. Theologians actually have a term for this. They call it general revelation and specific revelation. General revelation is what we can know from God from creation. It is the belief that flows naturally from the idea that human, humanity was made in the image and likeness of God and that the human mind is therefore capable of seeing God at work in the order of the universe. So it's what Paul told the church in Rome. What may be known about God is plain to humanity because God has made it plain to them. Here's the question, how did he make it plain? For since the creation, say creation, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. But general revelation in and of itself is not sufficient for what we need, so God revealed himself more specifically. What theologians call special or specific revelation. It is the teaching about God and his works that he has given us through the apostles and the prophets, which are now contained primarily, even exclusively in the Bible. We need both. Listen to me. We need to hear the voice of God both in creation, say creation, and in scripture, say scripture. And we get a fuller revelation of the grandness and the reality of God in both. But I'm afraid because of this idea that faith and science are opposed to one another, somehow they're diametrically opposite, that we are missing some of the incredible opportunities to see the grandness of God. Did you know that it was Christians who actually developed the foundation of what is called modern science? It was two Franciscan monks in the 1200s AD, Roger Bacon and William of Ockham, that laid the empirical and methodological foundation of the scientific method that you studied about when you were in school. And I know some of you are trying to forget, right? It was actually a guy named Sir Francis Bacon, a rabid Anglican, who expanded upon it and brought it to the modern world. Why would these followers of Jesus dive into what is the foundation of modern science? Simple. They wanted to know God better. They wanted to hear his voice more clearly through creation. Listen to me. Science is every day discovering things that show us the grandness of God. We've got to see it. Like the sun. How many of you are familiar with the sun? Hands up. How many of you are just not going to raise your hand no matter how good I preach? Yeah. The sun is 93,000 miles from earth. A ray of light from the sun can get to the earth in 8 minutes and 20 seconds. 93,000 miles away. Earth, if it were a golf ball, the sun would be a ball 15 feet in diameter. That's how much bigger it is. If we were try to replicate the power created by the sun, you could take all the power producing ability of humanity today. I'm talking about coal, wind, sun, everything you want to put together. And we could take the entire gross national product of the United States of America, spend it all on producing energy for 7 million years, and we could produce the amount of power that the sun generates in one second. And as great as that is, the sun is just one star. Not even a big one in the midst of our galaxy. And scientists think there may be hundreds, thousands, even billions of galaxies out there. And Psalm 147 proclaims, God determines the number of the what? Stars, billions of them, and he knows each one by name. Come on, if you start thinking that way, that the sun and all that ability, God just spoke it. How grand is he? 
Are we missing opportunities to meditate upon the greatness and the grandness of God and then to think a God who could speak a son into existence with such great power loves me? I mean, what might that do to the security we have inside of our being? But it's not just like stars and things out there. The fourth century theologian Augustine said, men go abroad to wonder at the heights of the mountains because we want a vacation, right? The huge waves of the sea, the long course of rivers, the vast compass of the ocean, the circular motion of the stars, but they pass by themselves and don't even notice. Guys, the human body is staggering. This that houses what we call the soul and the spirit is amazing. Your body is comprised of like 75 trillion cells, but it all started from one cell. Cell from your mom, cell from your dad, merged, 23 chromosomes each, gave you 46 chromosomes. There are 7.7 billion people on planet Earth. Not one of them has the exact same DNA code. Anthropologists estimate 106.5 billion people have lived on planet Earth since humanity came about. Not one of them, nearly 107 billion people, have the same exact DNA. Each one of us is unique. DNA is this three billion character code that makes a unique you. Scientists believe that if you could take the DNA out of a cell, a microscopic cell, and spread it out, it would be six feet long. If you tried to read your DNA code, you read each character of your DNA code, one character per second, you did it 24 hours, seven days a week, it would take you 96 years to read your DNA code. And then we're just talking about one cell of the human body. Come on, does that blow anybody's mind? To begin to think that God just spoke it. I was reading, um, the story of a scientist, Dr. Michael Gillian, who was a man of faith, left his faith, came back to faith because of science. And I was reading just this morning, um, and he talked about the speed of light. You remember the speed of light in school? 186,000, I think-ish miles per hour. But one thing scientists say is the closer you get to speed of light, time slows down. And then he postulated this. He said, if you can actually travel the speed of light... 186,000 miles per second per hour, whatever that is. You do that. You become timeless at that point. That light exists outside of time. And then he said, and the scripture says, God is light. He exists outside of time. I know. Your mind's just blown, right? I sit there and just ponder that. It's like, wow! And to think that such a one as that would have anything to do with me, much less leave that and take on my flesh, take on bone, take on my sin. Are we listening? to the grandness of our God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. One scientist, one of those believing scientists that you rarely hear about, there's more of them than you think, said it so well. 
Our universe just happens to have the right size density, chemical composition, and balance of forces to make life possible. And if that's our universe, the same applies to planet Earth. Secular scientists today decree Earth as rare and lucky that it has the precisely right balance of size, mass, composition, spin, sister planets, and a friendly sun to make complex life possible. The more exoplanet, other planets we discover, the more our Earth and solar system look like an incredibly lucky throw of the dice. At some point, words like chance become so improbable that miracle or design become far better explanations if only science was allowed to use such terms. But Christians can state the obvious. Listen to me. You live in one of the greatest generational times in human history because one of the blessings of living in the 21st century is that all the advancements of science can actually help us hear and know God better. More than any generation that has existed on planet Earth, we are given the privilege at a greater level than ever to know with awe the grandness of God. We have microscopes that can dive deep into things that we cannot see with the naked eye. We have telescopes. Man, we are launching telescopes to the end of the solar system so that we can look beyond. And then we have these computers that are crunching all that data. And every time scientists find something out and discover something they think is real, they got like a hundred other questions because it's like the world keeps growing and growing and growing because God is so grand. Man, we, we've got to be a people who see it again. we got to meditate. you got to go outside again and lay down on the ground and look at the stars. If you're over 50, take a chair because you're not going to be able to get up off the ground, okay? And we got to see the expanse and say, my heavenly Father created that. My dad created I don't get it all, but I am enamored that he would have anything to do with me. We live in this unique time and season. Now listen to me. I am not going to tell you that science and theologians agree on everything. Please hear me. Christian unity is not based on absolute agreement. You listen to me? So there are Jesus-loving, Bible-believing scientists, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing theologians who believe Genesis 1 and 2, literal six days of creation. That's how God did it. But there are also Jesus-loving, ooh, some of you get nervous. There are Jesus-loving, Bible-believing scientists and theologians who do not believe Genesis 1 is literal, but it's figurative. And what's a struggle is there's scientific and theological evidence for both. Christian unity doesn't mean we have to agree on every detail of biblical interpretation. You hear it? Christian unity isn't based upon agreeing with all the detail of biblical interpretation. That's why a foundation of Beltway Park, the way we walk together, we say it this way. In the essential things, we have unity. Say essential. In essential beliefs, we have unity. In non-essential beliefs, we have freedom or liberty. Say non-essential. And in all beliefs, no matter where somebody is, we show love and we show grace. What is essential regarding creation? Listen to me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's essential. What is secondary or non-essential? The details of how he did it. So I'm telling you, as you dive into this, you probably have some disagreements. You will look into some things and go deeper. It doesn't matter. Don't let your disagreements keep you from the wonder of what is. Get off TikTok for a little while. Just a little while. 
and turn on the Discovery Channel. You say, David, they a bunch of naturalistic atheists. Yeah, just, just throw that part out. And let them unpack some of the wonder of what's out there. And begin to get enamored. You might just shake your head and chuckle. And like, How in the world do they think this just happened? But we don't have to despise that. We can just be amazed. Because they're going deeper into the oceans and further into the stars. And they're just unpacking the grandness of our God. Who from nothingness, absolutely nothing, created it all. We need to listen to the voice of God in creation because in creation we see, we hear, as in no other place, I promise you, I love the word of God, but nothing describes, nothing expounds upon the grandness and the greatness of God like creation does. We gotta get out there and we gotta listen. We gotta have our minds blown. You know what? If you're a student, if you're in a science class, it should be in a place of worship, man. And y'all looking at me like I've done gone crazy. In science class, we should have been sitting there going, hallelujah. Yes, Jesus. Woo! Woo! We should bring, yeah, that's what I tell you. Y'all students, y'all bring white hankies to your science class. And just, woo! Look what God did. Come on, baby. Chemical composition, it's worthy of praise, right? Why? Because he's in it. I would actually challenge you can do that in math. You can do that in languages. You can do it in everything. God created it all. But anyway, you could do it in science. In creation we see as in no other place how great and powerful God is. And then to know such one loves me. With the kind of love that only he can have the height, the width, the breadth, and depth of which we cannot understand without him telling. He desires me. He seeks after me. Nothing is grander. We've got to ask God to give us a revelation of his grandness, of his power, of his potency, of his might once again. We've let our image of God grow too small. And part of the reason is we've pushed away. If I may, we've let the supposed argument between science and faith rob us of the voice of God. Listen to me. The argument is not between science and faith. It's actually an argument between worldviews. Reject the worldview and embrace some of the things God's doing. And listen to his voice. And you'll find great reward. So let's bow our heads wherever you are right now. The Apostle Paul prayed what I prayed for you and I. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. He is so grand and so great, we can't know him to the level we need to know him without him him empowering us to know him. So that's what I want us to pray. I want us to pray that we would know him better. Specifically, we would be minds blown, enamored, with his power and greatness. And if you're bold enough to do this, if you're saying, God, I want to know you better and I can't know you as I'm supposed to unless your spirit does a work inside of me. So spirit, give me your spirit of wisdom and revelation. I want to know you better. You want to know him like that. Throw your hand up right now and say, God, that's me. I want to know him. I want to know him. Father, that's what I pray for every man and woman. We need a revelation of your grandness. 
When there are things like wars and rumors of wars happening, we need a revelation of your grandness. When our life is going through the difficult problems, we need a revelation of your greatness. We long for security. We long for hope, and that comes as we know you better. You are the source of hope. You are the source of life. You are the source of all that is good and is right. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds to that which you are shouting to us through your creation, O God. I pray that we would be enamored, minds blown at the reality of your greatness. And we would know the greatness of your power. And I pray that every man and woman would know the greatness of your love. Give us power to know you better through both creation and through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.